Corner Fringe Ministries presents a 12-part series on the divine nature of God. Please enjoy the study. We are in part four of the study of the divine nature of God. And today we are going to begin by addressing one of the arguments that I presented on behalf of the Unitarian position. If you remember in our first week, one of the arguments that I proposed was that Yeshua couldn't be deity. He couldn't be God, that would be impossible, because Scripture states that no one can see God and live. I mean, that's the testimony of Scripture. Furthermore, we know for a fact, scriptural testimony again states, the people saw Yeshua. They saw Him. They witnessed Him. Read the New Testament. The crowds pressed upon Him. He spoke to thousands at a given time. So exactly how could Yeshua be deity? Is that possible? Well, that's the argument that we're going to be answering today. As I was gathering my notes for today's sermon, I had come across an article. It was written by a Jewish rabbi from Jerusalem. And part of the article, if not all of the article, was actually uh, taken out of a book that he authored called Seeing God. And what he does is he shares a tale within that uh, book. He shares a tale about a famous rabbi known as Rabbi Akiva who explains masterfully, in practical terms, why it is that man cannot see God. So I want to share this with you. I want to open up with this uh, because it pertains to our message today. He says, One of the greatest sages of Israel, Rabbi Akiva, contemporary of Aristotle, was once traveling through the streets of Rome. He walked into the marketplace and was recognized by a Roman merchant who was peddling various graven images. The patron, obviously proud of his wares, asked the venerable sage if he could see the rabbi's gods. Undaunted, the rabbi brought the fellow out of the stall and into the street, beckoned him to lie down on the ground and gaze at the sun. The merchant explained, no one can look at the sun and not get damaged. Rabbi Akiva responded, if you cannot even gaze upon one of our God's messengers, how do you expect to behold our God himself? This is a pretty amazing story. Here you have Rabbi Akiva. He's bringing to life a deeply mysterious, a deep spiritual concept, and he brings it into practical applications. Good rabbis pride themselves in being able to teach spiritual concepts in practical terms. Just read the New Testament. You find Rabbi Yeshua doing that very thing. You find the Apostle Paul as well. But Rabbi Akiva, he does this to prove the simple point that you'd never be able to look upon God and live. That is an impossibility. Just looking at the sun, your flesh becomes destroyed. How much more when you look at the Creator who created the sun? So Rabbi Akiva here, he teaches us, you cannot see God and live to tell about it. This is the testimony. This is the testimony in the Old Testament. This is the testimony in the New Testament. Let me give you a few examples of this. We'll go to the Old first. When speaking to Moses, Yahweh says the following. But he said, You cannot see my face. No man shall see me and live. Just consider the individual that he was talking to, Moshe. One of the greatest men who have ever walked the face of the earth. And he's telling them this. No one 
is going to be able to see me and live. Then what we do is we go into the New Testament. Look at the testimony there. Now keep in mind, this is post-Yeshua's resurrection. So Yeshua had already come and he had gone. And listen to what John states. This is his testimony. No one has seen God at any time. So getting back to the argument, okay, if no one has seen God at any time, then clearly Yeshua could not be deity because the people saw him, right? Wrong. While it is true, the scriptural testimony is that no one can see God or even has seen God, there is a scriptural testimony that actually states the exact opposite. Yes, you heard me correctly. In other words, there are scriptures that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has in fact been seen by men and those men have lived to tell about it. So you could say, Daniel, you seem to be talking out of both sides of your mouth. How, how, how do you reconcile two completely different statements, statements which appear to oppose one another? My answer is simple. Just look at the totality of scripture, tota scriptura. And what you will find is that statements like these that appear to contradict one another, when you take the totality of Scripture, that contradiction begins to dissolve, and they come together like that, and it makes perfect sense. So we're going to begin today by looking at the scriptural testimony that does in fact prove God has been seen, and the people who saw him live to tell about it. We're going to begin in Genesis 18. This is a passage we're entering. This is a time where the Lord is coming to Avraham, Abraham. And this is what it says in verse 1. Then Yahweh, this is Yahweh, this is the Lord, appeared to Abraham by the terebinth trees of Amri. And as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, um, uh, as he's sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, so he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men. Shalosha Anashim. Three men. Okay? Three men were standing by him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the ground. Verse 3. And said, My Lord, if I now have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. All right, so again, to reemphasize, we have a total of three men mentioned here that have come to visit Abraham. Now, as the story continues, we find out that two of these men leave to head off to Sodom. But one of them stays. Genesis 18, verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before Yahweh, the Lord. So, two men, they go off to Sodom. But as you come to Genesis 19, verse 1, we find out that these two men, they're not men at all. They're angels of God, sent for the purpose to go and destroy Sodom because of their wickedness. But what happens? Those were two. One man stays behind. And we discover that that one man is, in fact, none other than Yahweh himself. And Abraham stood still before him. And what's so interesting about this, they begin to dialogue. Abraham with Yahweh. And Abraham, knowing it was revealed to him, he knew why the two angels were sent off to Sodom. He knew Sodom was going to be destroyed. He asked the Lord, Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? 
If there were 50 righteous men living in a city, would you destroy the city for the sake of 50? And he says, no. And then Abraham goes on to say, well, what about if there were 45? Yahweh says, no. 40? No. 20? No. 10? No. So after they get done dialoguing, this is what happens in Genesis 18.32. Or 1833. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is amazing. Abraham is dialoguing directly with Yahweh, and just in case you were questioning that, then it actually sums up the conclusion that Yahweh went his way. Abraham saw God. There's no way around it. Abraham, with his own eyes and his own lips, dialogued with the Lord. Let me give you another example. Exodus 24, verse 1. Now he said to Moshe, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Verse 9. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, and seventy elders of Israel, and they, Vayiru at Elohei Israel. They saw the God of Israel. That is the legitimate, this is the legitimate testimony. It's exactly what it says in the Hebrew. They saw the God of Israel. And if you're questioning whether or not they actually saw, it goes on to say this. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, Elohim, and they ate and drank. I want to draw your attention to a passage that was put here very specifically with great purpose. This statement in verse 11 that said, but on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. Why would that be added? Because the text and the testimony of Torah is you cannot see God and live. That was added for that specific purpose. This is a clarification. It was God's choosing to reveal himself to them, and yet they were spared. They saw God. Let me give you another example. We all know who Samson is. He's that guy that was born a Nazarite, right? Really beautiful long hair, huge muscles. I mean, a modern-day Fabio, if you will. And he gets... Tied up with a woman, and um, you know how the rest of the story goes. He, unfortunately, Delilah deceives him and all that. We've heard all these stories. We've heard all the different stories of Samson. But what you don't often hear is the story about his parents. And it's a very important story. Scripture records that Samson's parents had a very unique encounter. They had an angel of God that, that literally had come and met with them. Now, at the first, the angel actually only appeared to Manoah's wife. And it didn't appear to him personally. So what Manoah does is he prays to the Lord and he says, send this angel back to me so that I might know what to do with this child. And so the Lord hears him and he sends the angel back to him. Manoah starts dialoguing with this angel. And we read this in Judges 13, verse 17. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name that when your words come to pass we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to them, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah, excuse me, so Manoah took the young goat uh, with the grain offering, and he offered it upon the rock uh, to the uh, upon the rock to the Lord. 
And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. And here's where it gets really interesting. Verse 20. It happened as the flame uh, went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And they knew more than that because in verse 22 it says, And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. Manoah knew who he had just saw. He saw Elohim with his own eyes. And, and one thing I want to draw your attention to, what did the angel do? It's so fascinating. What brought them to their knees? What dropped them to their knees in awe? It was the fact that that angel went into the flame of the altar, that offering, and ascended up into it. Very important. He knew who he was dealing with. We have seen God. Now the wife in her wisdom, she comes to him to calm him down. In verse 23, she says, his wife said to him, if Yahweh had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. Notice there's no rebuke or correction. No, my husband, I'm sorry, you had it wrong. We did not see God. None of that happened. She said, if God desired to kill us, like basically, he would have done so. He went to show us all these beautiful things, including the angel ascending in that offering. They saw God. Let me give you one more example where we find God was actually seen. And this is the story of Jacob. Jacob went out. Um, his parents had sent him out to, to go find, uh, to, to escape from Esau's wrath. And um, during the time, he stayed with Laban, and he acquired some wives. He grew his family. And now Jacob is on his way home, back to his homeland. He's back, back to the promised land. And uh, this is what is said in Genesis 32, verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And that is man in, in, in the Hebrew. It's ish, a man. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Verse 25, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Very important to identify. If we were just to stop right here, I would tell you there's much more to this story than meets the eye. We have a strong indicator that Jacob knew exactly who he was wrestling with. We pick up on this indicator because what, he, what does he do? He does not let this man go unless that man blesses him. Jacob knew something. He knew this man had the authority. He knew he had the potential to bless him. All right, let's continue in verse 27. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Yaakov. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Yaakov, but Israel. For you have struggled with Elohim and with men and have prevailed. You see the response of this man? who he was struggling with, literally his own testimony states, you have struggled with God. And it goes on in verse 29. 
Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. <laughs> it's interesting. He blessed him there. Verse 30. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Why does he add that little part? And my life is preserved. Because he knows Scripture he knows what the truth is, that no one can see God and live, and yet he saw God face to face, and his life has been preserved. Jacob saw God. That is the scriptural testimony. So how do we reconcile the fact that the Bible states that no one can see God and live, and yet we find biblical testimony, people actually seeing God and being able to tell about the experience? Here's what we need to understand. When the Bible states that no one can see God, it is in fact referring to that no one has ever seen God, the Father, enthroned on His throne in all His eternal glory. No one has ever witnessed that. Except who? The monogamous theos. No one has seen God at any time except the monogamous theos, the unique God who is what? In the bosom of the Father. So what did these men see? They saw theophany. They literally saw God manifest in the flesh. That's what they saw. And I would further argue, they saw Yeshua. That's who they saw. Think about this. Abraham, literally dialoguing with the man, with Yahweh, it says. Abraham's dialoguing with Yahweh, and they're doing all these things. He actually sees him. Is it a coincidence as we come to John chapter 8? that out of Yeshua's own mouth, his testimony said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. Is that a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that when Manoah saw the man, this angel of the Lord sent to him, the thing that made him fall to his knees was that this person went into the offering as though he was the sacrifice himself and ascended to God in heaven. And then we find out, that Yeshua is the ultimate sacrifice. And what about Jacob? Did you notice what the man did who wrestled with Jacob? And keep in mind the one who Jacob refers to as God. Let me take you back a verse. Genesis 32, 28. He said, Your name shall no longer be called Yaakov, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Do you see what he just did? He changed his name. This is something that God is found doing in Scripture. If we go fast forward into the New Testament, uh, to the Gospel of John, in the very first chapter, we find that Andrew, he's running around looking for his brother Peter. He finds his brother Peter and says, Peter, come with us. We have found the Messiah. Come with us. And John 1, verse 42, look at what happens. And he brought him to Yeshua. Now when Yeshua looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jody. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. This is amazing. The very thing that the man did who wrestled with Jacob, we find Yeshua doing here with Peter. Exact same thing. As though they had the exact same authority. The bottom line is, is that at times... God has chosen to reveal himself. Yes, sometimes it's in a vision. Sometimes it's in a dream. It can be in flames of fire, a pillar of fire by night. Or what about the burning bush where Moses saw God? 
in the burning bush. And at other times, God can choose to reveal himself in a veil of flesh. So getting back to this argument that Yeshua cannot be deity because people saw him, well, it doesn't hold water. When you look at the totality of Scripture, that doesn't hold water. Moreover, lest we forget what was Yeshua's own testimony. Let's listen from, to him. He says in John 14, verse 6, Yeshua said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. That's the testimony. It's interesting, one of his apostles questioned this. Listen to what he says. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Yeshua said to him, Have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I want you to think about this for a second. Nowhere or by anyone in Scripture will you find making a statement like this. Did you ever hear Moses walk out to the children of Israel? Look at me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Have any of these awesome men in Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, have any of them have said, if you've seen me, you've seen God? That's blasphemy. That would be blasphemy. The only one that could possibly get away with uttering those words are the monogamous theos, the one who's in the bosom of the Father, the only begotten Son, Yeshua. The only way Yeshua could make a statement like this is if he literally is the exact representation of the Father. And interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul makes this very observation. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily some translations the fullness of the godhead in bodily form that's who yeshua is he's literally the entirety of the godhead in a veil of flesh it's all in him hebrews 1 3 who being in the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person he's literally the express image of his person so when yeshua states that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He quite literally means it. Unless we forget the prophetic name by which he was called, Emmanuel, God with us. He tabernacled among us. So when the people saw Yeshua, they saw God. But yes, it was God veiled in the flesh. Where technically speaking, his eternal glory as found on the throne in heaven, that was still concealed. I don't have a problem with that. So when we see Scripture state that no one can see God, understand it has nothing to do with seeing God in His eternal, or it has to do with God seeing Him literally in His eternal state, in His eternal glory. That brightness of His coming, right? Where it literally, uh, if you read Scripture, is what does Paul say? He actually said, even though we have known Messiah according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. And you fast forward into Thessalonians, and when Yeshua comes back, he will destroy the lawless one with the brightness of his coming. Even though God had come 
in the veil of flesh, even though Yeshua, the Son of God, had come, he is not like that anymore. He is now glorified. Question that. Talk to the Apostle Paul, who was literally knocked off his donkey because of just the bright light. That bright light knocked off. He went blind. I want to address another passage that I quoted from week one. Again, arguing on behalf of the Unitarian movement. And the passage was this, and, and just before I show you, I, I, I'm not putting this up here because I think it's a Unitarian argument. This is an argument that Unitarians have brought to me, okay? They've actually brought this to me in proof that Yeshua could not possibly be God. And that is John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. <clears throat> that they may know you. Now keep in mind here, put this into context. Yeshua is praying to his Father. This is the intercessory prayer. One of the most famous prayers in all of Scripture. Yeshua is praying directly to his Father and he says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. This is Yeshua speaking. And Yeshua HaMashiach, whom you have sent. So the argument is, is that I've received by Unitarians is they come to me and say, you, you clearly don't understand the passage because Yeshua has his own self-consciousness that he is not the only God. That he is not God, but his Father is the only true God. And my response to that is, is you have to read the entire prayer. Just try it. Just read the entire prayer. What is so fascinating about this prayer? There are many passages in Scripture that we find that reveal the nature of Yeshua with his Father. But this is one of the most prolific passages in all the Scripture because you literally have this beautiful, as I said last week, this beautiful flower opening where you get this revelation of who God really is. And Yeshua revealing to the multitudes, to us today, his relationship, his correlation to the Father. It is absolutely beautiful. So I want to look at this in John 17, verse 1. Yeshua spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, and he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Three very, very important statements to put down to let penetrate into your mind. And that is, the number one is, Yeshua says, glorify your son. The second statement is, is that Yeshua has authority over all flesh. All authority, he has it. And this third statement, he gives eternal life. I want you to think about these statements. We have receiving glory, we have authority over all mankind, and we have giving eternal life. Who does that describe? God. Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. It's so fascinating here. Does he stop there? It's interesting what he goes on to explain. Yeshua is revealing to us the revelation of his relationship to the Father. He doesn't stop there. That they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua HaMashiach, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me, uh, which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This 
proves the pre-existence of Yeshua. His, self, his own self-consciousness. He had the glory that is only the Father's before the world was. These are outrageous statements, right? No man that has ever walked on the face of the planet or even an angel of God in heaven could possibly make these statements without committing blasphemy. Yeshua states, glorify me with yourself. Think about this. For Yeshua to actually state to the Father, by the way, to glorify him and the manner in which the Father is glorified, this could only be understood as a deistic statement. There's no other way to understand it. I think after reading this passage in context, we begin to see that, that curtain, if you will, to see behind this veil that's been there and behind the curtain, and we begin to see this very deep spiritual relationship that exists, this beautiful relationship that, that truly is there between the Father and Son, and that God is a God of relationship. His manifestation. Analyze creation of the world. Families established on relationships, husbands and wives on relationships. It's beautiful. It's a revelation of who God truly is in the Godhead. Amen? Here's the reality. Yeshua receives the same glory, that only glory that is due to the Father. He receives it. And yet, we know in Scripture, such as, I'll give you an example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, no flesh should glory in his presence. That's the testimony. That's the scriptural testimony. No flesh should glory in his presence. Well, we know Yeshua came in as a man, and if you're taking the Unitarian position, he would even say a glorified man, but it doesn't matter. No flesh shall receive glory in his presence. That would ixnay Yeshua from receiving glory. Correct? What about Isaiah 42? I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carve images. God will not, under any circumstance, give his glory to another. And yet, Scripture tells us, Yeshua's own testimony is that he had this glory before the earth was. Just look at the statement that Peter makes in the conclusion of his second epistle. And there are many like it. I'm just showing you one example. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. The glory that is only to be given to God it is given to Yeshua. Either he is God or it's idolatry. It's blasphemy. There is no middle ground here. God will not give his glory to another. Let's go back to John, this intercessory prayer in verse 6. I have manifest your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, verse 8, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them you see this beautiful flower that is starting to open up and we see we actually get to see a spiritual understanding we're getting a spiritual revelation as it were as to the godhead the relationship that exists between the father 
and the Son. The monogamous theos, the only, the unique God, one-of-a-kind God who is in the bosom of the Father. There are not two separate gods. There's no such thing. There's one God. He is a chad. He is a chad with his Son. He is one. Who can make this statement? Think about this. Have you ever heard of anyone in the Bible, all the great men in the Bible, going around state all the things that are the Father's, they're mine? Who's ever heard of that? That's a blasphemous statement from anyone but from the Son, who is literally one with his Father. That is a blasphemous statement. John 16, 15, we'll close with this. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. What a powerful relationship. Everything that the Father has, it is Yeshua's. No one can make this statement. Amen? Next week, we are going to continue. Uh, and I'm going I'm to continue to talk about this perfect relationship, as it were, a perfect circle. And I'm going to share with you a story from the Old Testament that is a revelation. It's a, show, it's a beautiful story that shows this, this nature, as it were, between the Father and the Son. Shabbat Shalom.